You're listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. I'm Kendra, and I love having interesting conversations with my friends about art, media, life, the universe, and everything. And that is what this podcast is all about. Welcome back, Bethany. I love having podcasts with you. Yeah, I love talking to you, too. And I'm particularly excited about the one we're going to do today because this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. I have a lot of favorite movies, but throughout the years, this one has stayed top 10. And that is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. (laughs) Nice. I actually did not realize this was one of your favorite movies, which it totally makes sense. I just vaguely (laughs) knew that I thought you kind of liked some spaghetti westerns because of something you said in a different episode. I can't even remember who you were talking to, but you said that spaghetti westerns tend to be like in a really open space Mm -hmm. with a slower pace, too. So you kind of have more space to think while you're watching, basically. I'm glad I I accidentally wanted to do a movie that you actually like. We mostly talk about movies I like, but this one I I particularly like. This has been, yeah, one of my favorite movies since I was a teenager. And it has been very influential in how I watch movies when I was into making little short films. This movie influenced a lot of how I made movies. And I think it's just an influential film in general. So I love it very, very much. For anyone who may not have seen this, would you like to give kind of a a summary? Sure. So this is a movie that stars Clint Eastwood, and he is the good, as is listed in the title of the movie. And he's been working with the ugly, whose name is Tuco in the film. And they have been sort of scamming these small communities because Tuco has a price on his head. And so Clint Eastwood's character, who's unnamed, will turn Tuco in, get the money for turning Tuco in. And then when Tuco is just about to be hung, he has the the noose around his neck, um, Clint Eastwood will shoot the rope and he and Tuco will escape and then split the money. So they kind of have this, they sort of have a good relationship, but they're both outlaws and really only care about the money for the most part. So it's a little bit a difficult relationship. Clint Eastwood's character decides, I'll call him the man with no name. The man with no name decides that Tuco is not going to have a high enough price on his head for, the, for doing this scam more. So he just leaves to to go out in the desert. And so their relationship deteriorates. Tuco makes it back to a town, finally catches up with the man with no name. And then then Tuco takes the man with no name out into the desert and um, makes him walk with no water till he's almost dead. He's just his skin is so dry and uh, he's dehydrated and falling over. Um, There's a wagon that comes up uh, with the horses just running free and they find a bunch of dead people the bunch of dead guys in there they're 
Oh, shoot, are they Union or Confederate soldiers? They're Confederate soldiers. So I okay. guess the, one thing to mention that I think is really interesting, this whole story takes place during the Civil War, but none of the main characters really are loyal to one side or the other. They're kind of operating independently. So they end up in a Union prison camp, but then later, because they dressed like Confederates, but then later on, they help a Union. It's, it's just really interesting to me how there's this huge war going on, but we're just following these guys doing their own thing. And there's a really big scene with so many, so many Union and Confederate extras. It You would assume this was just a civil war movie honestly and they have so many good details in there with like the gatling guns and the mm-hmm. um, just everything that they do with the battle like it, you wouldn't normally go to that much detail unless you were making a civil war movie but it's really not about anything with the civil war it's more just yeah like you said these these guys they're doing their own thing and kind of just think the war is unnecessary you know a bunch of people are dying for no reason so anyway so they find the wagon with the confederate soldiers and one of them is still barely alive and he tells Tuco that they had found a bunch of money two hundred thousand dollars of gold and they had hid it in a grave so he tells Tuco where the cemetery is and then he starts to die. So Tuco goes to get some water for him. And while Tuco's gone, the man with no name gets the name of which grave they hid the money in. So Tuco has part of the information and the man with no name has part of the information. And they have to work together to get to the gold because neither of them knows the whole story. And so while they're trying to find the gold and get through these battles that are going on for the Civil War... Um, There's also another man, um, Angel Eyes, who is the bad in the film, who is also trying to track down the gold. And so it's kind of a power struggle between these three. You know, like uh, the man with no name doesn't really want to work with Tuco, but they kind of have to. And then Angel Eyes sometimes gets in control over them. And um, so that's sort of the plot of the movie i don't want to spoil this one because Uh the ending is so good Uh i'm gonna try not to because i know even though this movie was made so long ago you might not you might just have not had a chance to watch it so i don't want to spoil it it's such because you don't know what's going to happen until like the last shot of the movie really yeah and they're constantly trying to double cross each other and double crossing each other and mixing it up of who's helping who sometimes it's Tuco and the man with no name and then at one point it becomes the man with no name and angel eyes and it's it's so fun yeah yeah so that dynamic is really cool what do you think about the plot of this movie and kind of that power dynamic and then how it influenced the plots of other movies that came after it I love so much that you asked that question because I could talk about this movie a lot and 
I do think about its influence on cinema. And I, I do think it's very relevant. Something that struck me when I first saw it is there really is no good. Uh, Clint Eastwood's character is labeled the good, but he's not really. It's it's a bunch of not good people doing not good things. And I think that's an interesting experience to watch because you're not really necessarily cheering for anyone. But the bad is very – is. The only reason the bad is worse than Tuco and the man with no name is because he's shown like he beats up a woman, he tortures prisoners, he murders a man and his family, and that's what makes him bad. But none of them are really, really good. So in a weird way, it makes the emotional stakes lower for me. And then I just enjoy all the hijinks. Something else that I've thought about recently is it's not really about Clint Eastwood's character. Like he's the he's the cool guy. He does have a place in the story, but I think it's really Tuco's story. And that theory kind of started formulating when I saw Mad Max Fury Road, which is also one of my favorite movies. And here's my hot take. I think Fury Road was actually inspired by The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Because in Mad Max Fury Road, there are also three main characters who aren't necessarily good. And those characters are Furiosa. You could say she really is good. She is trying to do good. But you can pick up by context. She has not always done good things. And then you have this war boy, Nux, um, who's kind of this soldier type character who's after her. And he's, he's out to get her. And then you have the character of Mad Max, who is just kind of doing his own thing in the middle of all these different power struggles in a post-apocalyptic world. And I was I watched that, and then I watched The Good and the Bad and the Ugly again, and I'm like, oh, Mad Max is Tuco. And there's just several things that make them very similar, is they, they're not necessarily the the driving force behind the story. They're just kind of along for the ride and end up doing things. There's even a part in both movies where Tuco is handcuffed to a corpse and he's trying to get loose because he, you know, this corpse is dragging him down. And the same thing happens in Mad Max Fury Road to Mad Max. So I think either directly inspired or indirectly, I think the good, the bad, and the ugly has a heavy influence in at least Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, man. I haven't even seen that movie, actually, but now I need to. (laughs) That's so cool. The Mad, the Max, and the Fury or something. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Basically, I I find those two movies equally compelling 
and equally, uh, it, it, they're very different because you know one's set in the Civil War, one's set in a post-apocalyptic world, but the cinematography is very similar. Of the the good, the bad, and the ugly, the the director Sergei Leon he did most famously three particular spaghetti westerns and. I guess when I say I like spaghetti westerns, I mean I like Sergei Leone's movies because mm. they all star Clint Eastwood and they all were shot in Italy and he used a very, I would say, kind of unique style of cinematography. It's very close shots and very far away shots. It's extremes. And it, and it just gives this really interesting feel to me of, like you said earlier, wide open spaces, but then really intense, almost claustrophobic close-ups. And the, the same thing in Mad Max Fury Road. Big, wide open spaces, and then like intense close-ups. Yeah. I forgot about the intense close-ups for some reason, because I originally watched this movie when I was a teenager and I mostly watched it was did this movie win an academy award or something it may have I don't (laughs) with all my (laughs) knowledge about it I don't actually know because I can't remember because my mom and I were going through and watching through all the academy award winning uh, best picture films and I, I don't think this was one that would be a best picture because it's an international film although I don't really know how that all works. So I don't know if we were watching this because of our Academy Award thing or my dad actually really likes Westerns and Clint Eastwood. So we might have watched it because it's something that he would like. So it had been a while since I had seen it. I remembered liking it and I remember thinking that it was a little bit slow and wishing that I could edit some things down a little bit (laughs) as a teenager. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but I for- I totally forgot about the close-up shots until I watched it again this week. And then, you know, from the first shots of the film, it's the wide shots like you were talking about. And then the extreme close-ups. That threw me off at first, too, because I didn't realize we were, you know, it, we were looking at a guy. His We were looking at his face really close. And then we were looking at what he was looking at. And I'm not used to the camera moving quite so abruptly mm-hmm. across the 180 line, you know, because normally mm-hmm. you see the guy and you get some context of like where he's standing kind of. And then somehow it just seems like it's a bit not straight across, basically, like not the guy and and then straight across from him. And so it took me a second this time to get used to that of like, oh, we're, we're speaking like a different film language than I thought we were. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. after the first scene, I, I didn't even really notice it anymore. But I just thought that was so interesting because I watched a, a YouTube video about how generally filmmakers try to avoid crossing that 180 line like that um, because it can feel a little bit jarring. But it works so well in this, just that, like you said, seeing the detail and then seeing the, the wide open space that they're in. And it gives you that time to think of like, oh, it kind of makes you feel like you're actually there. 
Mm -hmm. you know, because we, our eyes kind of work like that of focusing on really small details, but also taking in the big picture at the same time. And it's the closest way you could really do that with a camera, you know? So what else, what do you think about the, just the cinematography in general? One of the reasons it was really intriguing to me as a teenager was because it was slower and because of those intense extremes. And I think it a little, little bit similar to uh, what was happening when I was a teenager, which is uh, superhero movies and just movies in general were going for a grittier feel. So I was really into Batman Begins, and that was just a very different kind of superhero movie at the time because it was taking a more realistic look at cartoon characters and the colors were faded and the world was just supposed to be darker and grittier. And Sergei Leone's Spaghetti Westerns are dark and gritty. Like there's dust everywhere. And many of the actors are not Hollywood stars. A lot of them are just extras from Italy and they, they look very interesting. They just, I, I think the camera captures like the, the beauty in, in coarse things, if that makes any sense of yeah. beauty in grittiness, beauty in, faces that don't look all beautiful and that really I don't know that sparked something a a big interest in me of like I didn't know movies could look like this because most of the movies I had seen were very polished and and even like Batman Begins is very polished in in a certain way so the good the bad and the ugly it was rougher than even that and and it was cool. And they, the actors look sweaty and like they have dust caked to them all the time. There's um, flies it, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, where I don't know if it has to do because I'm sure it was shot on film. They didn't have mm-hmm. digital cameras then. So no. I don't know if it has to do with the film or what. But even when characters are supposed to be dirty and in new films I've seen recently, they don't quite, it doesn't look the same like you're talking about. It just doesn't look gritty enough. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. and there's something about the film too that just really makes people's eyes pop too, especially uh-huh. the uh, Confederate soldier that um, the man with no name comes across and he's dying. And, oh shoot, maybe he's a Union soldier. This is horrible. He, anyway, he's a soldier of some sort. <laughs> During the big battle that we don't really even have a side on, but because they're like going from one side to the other. Yes, they encounter the that one soldier who's dying. He's yeah, and then he really intense. Room. Yeah. Yeah, and then his eyes are just so like greenish blue. It's so cool. I also really like some things that maybe are overused in film now but I think they didn't really happen much when this movie came out like the opening scene when the bounty hunters are slowly walking towards each other and then when they get to the saloon door at the same time they just both run in at the same time and then Tuco jumps out the window um (laughs) just 
that transition of really slow to just bursting into action all of a sudden is used in comedy a lot Mm -hmm. more um but it's so good in this movie i actually wasn't sure if i was supposed to laugh at that part or not because it just struck me as so funny (laughs) they just start running in it is funny and then he has he has like a chicken leg in his mouth as he's jumping out the window i and then the ugly is just on the screen (laughs) and with a little you know a little musical Ah! splash yeah I think that that little sound is kind of used for whenever anyone says something really cool or snarky or uh, kind of tricks another character. They always like everything just kind of stops and you hear that little music bit. And I think I think mm-hmm. it's funny. It's an interesting way to like let the audience know, okay, this guy just got served. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I know because we've talked before about how in movies the music is generally supposed to just, you're not even supposed to notice it. You know, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be so good and so part of the scene that it, you just take it in, basically. Mm-hmm. And this, the the score in this movie is not like that. But oh, I no. love it. It, it. it like it sticks out perfectly. It's its own, like it's, it's. Maybe because there's not as much dialogue in this movie. It's like yes. the, the music gets its own speaking part, you know. I feel like the music carries the story because there's not a lot of dialogue. And music can tell you, this is the bad guy. This is the good guy. We're supposed to feel sad now. We're supposed to feel happy now. And the music is hev- heavy-handed in this movie. But like you, I love every moment of it. Because it's almost like a character. There is very, very little dialogue in this movie. The only person who talks at all, really, is Tuco. And he'll babble on and on and kind of let you understand what's going on. But there is very long scenes with no dialogue. In fact, the first time I watched it, I didn't know that the subtitles had been turned on until about 15 minutes in because nobody talks until about 15 minutes in the entire opening scene is the bad going to this person's house and they like eat dinner staring at each other while the tension builds and then they finally start talking yeah. After like 15 yeah. minutes. <laughs> doesn't the guy that he's intimidating, isn't he the one that starts to talk first? I, I don't remember. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's a lot. It, it's a very long scene of them just like eyeing each other over their bowls of, of food. Just like looking at each other. And you're... I'm not sure if everyone would like to watch this movie. Because it's very slow. And I think that's why... I like it because it doesn't tell you everything. It gives my mind space to imagine what's going on of, okay, there's something going on between these two guys. They have history together. What is their history? What did they do together? What are they thinking? How is this going to end? And I think it also adds a little bit to the, the realism because real life is also a lot of really boring stuff with short moments of excitement. Yeah, I really like the pace changes because for me, a lot of 
new action movies, which I know that's a whole different genre, but a lot of new action movies are a bit too fast for me, Mm -hmm. Um, which I can get on a whole bunny trail about that whole thing. I, I like that the pace in this is slow, but then when it needs to be fast and really should be fast, it is. Yes. I mean, I do have to admit some of the slow parts are a little bit too slow for me. You know, maybe they they could have moved the camera just a tiny bit faster (laughs) (laughs) to look over. Um, But that's totally fine. I I get it as a style choice. Oh, another part I wanted to talk about regarding the camera and uh, editing choices is when they first introduce the man with no name. And they have him talk off of camera and walk into frame, but you can only see his back and you see people's reactions to him. Because that's kind of a trope now of like, oh, this Uh is the guy, you know, but Uh it works so well in this movie. It's so cool. He seems so cool. I think this movie may have started that because, as you said, that's kind of a trope now, like that's how Indiana Jones was introduced in Raiders of the lost ark and mm-hmm. yeah now it's a the the figure appears and you know oh this is someone important well and then it, i always hate it when they sometimes they'll even go like half the movie and you don't see the guy's face and then you finally see it and it's like oh he's not actually that intimidating though <laughs> just kind of a right, right? <laughs> clint eastwood is just well they didn't wait Sometimes they wait too long in movies. If they had waited too long, it probably wouldn't have worked. But just for that one scene, it was the perfect timing. Yeah, speaking of its influence on other things, I really, really, really like the TV series The Mandalorian. And I was actually kind of surprised that other people liked it because I saw the first episode and it was like, oh, somebody mixed Clint Eastwood with Star Wars. This is me. This was made for me because when he, in the first scene, the Mandalorian, this kind of walks into a bar exactly the same way that Clint Eastwood would. And and I believe there's even some spur sound effects as clinking as he walks into the bar. And I was like, well, yeah, this is my jam. Oh man, that's so cool. I'm going to have to rewatch The Mandalorian, I think, because I just didn't pick up on the Western things in it for some reason. And I even knew going into it, I think you told me that there were like huge Western influences in it. And Luke was picking up on some. Um, mm, your your husband? My Luke. husband. Yeah. I just need to. Yeah. I need to rewatch that one. It's okay. I I really, really like Sergei Leon's Spaghetti Western. So I. Uh, I very much appreciated how, not so much in the later seasons, but pretty much the first three episodes of The Mandalorian could have been a Clint Eastwood version of Star Wars, which I love. (laughs) Which is really cool because I've always really liked the bounty hunters in Star Wars anyway. And that lends itself really well to just that whole idea of the American West, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think it was a good decision. And now it's time for random recommendations. I have sort of a two 
part recommendation. Um, one is a song that I think pairs well with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and that is Barracuda by Heart. Um, for some reason, to me, that just kind of matches the feel of the action parts of this movie. And so I think it might be kind of fun to watch the movie and l- listen to the song if you feel like having a good music pairing. And then the second part of my recommendation is if you would like to see more media like um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, um, the easy recommendation here is just to watch the other two movies in this trilogy. Um, the Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is a pre- prequel. Um, so there's also The uh, Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More. So that's super easy. They both have Clint Eastwood in them. They're both, you know, they're just part of the same kind of series. So uh, you can watch those ones. And then if you want more Clint Eastwood, you can watch Dirty Harry. That's also a pretty, pretty interesting watch. It has nothing to do with Westerns or anything like that, but it is Clint Eastwood. And then um, Django Unchained, it would be another kind of similar movie. Quentin Tarantino was influenced by Sergio Leone. And so, especially with that movie, you can see a lot of that influence in there. I do uh, I have to give the disclaimer that it's rated R and for good reason. There's there's things in there that kids shouldn't see. And so if you are a child or a sensitive viewer, you might want to skip that one. And wow, this is a really long recommendation, but I have one more. I watched the Danish National Symphony Orchestra do a live performance of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly theme. I should say I watched a recording of it. I wasn't actually there. And it's uh, really funny. (laughs) Um, They do a wonderful job, but it just points out the interesting instruments that the composer chose for the music. And some of them really surprised me. So that's just kind of a fun thing to watch, too. Hello, friends. This is the part of the show where Kendra gives a recommendation. And I would like to recommend Koi Inc. Studio. I did a podcast with my friend Amanda, who runs Koi Inc. She's an artist, a teacher, and she has a lot of cool things to share. If you are interested in art, specifically local art for Longmont, Colorado, you should check out some of her products. She has beautiful illustrations and watercolor paintings. If you are interested in learning about art, she is a wonderful teacher and I highly recommend her. You can check out her at koiinkstudio.com. That's C-O-Y-I-N-K studio.com. Now, back to the episode. I would like to hear more about your thoughts regarding the music in the movie. Oh, man, I love the music so much. Inio Morricone was the composer for the good the bad and the ugly and a lot of films many of them westerns not all of them and he could be regarded as one of the most influential uh, composers in film right up there with john williams in fact probably inspired a little bit of john williams too I don't think that he did it for the good, the bad, and the ugly. So this is a little bit of a bunny trail. But for one of the movies, which is called Once Upon a Time in the West, 
he composed a lot of the music beforehand and then he played the music on set for the actors to hear so that it kind of set the mood for the scene. I just think that's a beautiful thing to do when filming a movie. Actors have to do a lot, especially now, because many times they're not even on a set. They're on a green screen with nothing other than their own acting abilities to tell them what is going on and what they should be feeling. And I just thought that was a really sweet story about Morricone playing music for the actors on set. And the good, the bad, and the ugly music is iconic. It's it's weird. I was I was watching a children's movie the other day called The Book of Life. And suddenly the good the um not the main theme, but there's a, a theme when they get to the the graveyard and they're looking for the gold that's uh has this beautiful opera singer oh yeah doing some very very high notes this is very like i think it's very classy music for being a western (laughs) and 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 suddenly that music started playing in the children's film and that it was like what what is this doing here but the whether or not you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, you have most likely heard riffs or parodies of the music. Another interesting tie-in to the good, the bad, and the ugly is actually Pirates of the Caribbean. In the second movie, there's a part where several main characters need to confront each other, and they're they all want to kill each other, so they... They have like middle ground on this teeny, teeny, tiny little island that's barely big enough for all of them to stand on. And there's this shot of just them looking across each at each other. And it's just this instrumental piece. And it is totally a ripoff of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like it is yeah. so similar <laughs> to the end, the intense music when. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly are all about to shoot each other. And, and that made me laugh because I, I think that also, that might be one that has some of the spur sound effects, even though no one is actually wearing spurs. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) that kind of situation, the music tends to have a certain feel. And it's, it's always referencing the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) Well, of course they're wearing spurs. How do you think the pirates get their ship to go faster? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the original music is quite beautiful. It is, like I say, sometimes it's a little cheesy. Sometimes it's a little heavy-handed. But I think it's very unusual. And again, (laughs) it's influence. um, I'm not going to say his name because it is a... Um, a difficult, more difficult name to say, the composer for the music of the TV series, The Mandalorian. Another reason why I just loved that show is that the music is very unusual and has a lot of almost discordant sounds. And, and I think it works really well for the Star Wars genre because it's a little bit synth soundy but I, it was a nod to Ennio Morricone because Ennio used a lot of interesting 
sounds. He used a whip crack in, um, I think it's for, for a few dollars more. In some of the more quiet scenes, there will be um, bells or a music box. And then he'll go really loud with big horns, um, a choir. And it's just a, a very rich musical landscape, which, as you can tell, I'm very, very excited about. <laughs> right. What What do you think of the music? I agree with everything you said. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, I think it's cool. He uses instruments together that don't usually go together, too. Like the soprano classical singer. And then there's a guitar, too. Oh, and okay. and not a classical guitar, just an electric guitar. And so, yeah, I just like how the instruments work together when you wouldn't nor- normally hear that. And... I, I think that even though, like you said, some of it can be cheesy, that works pretty well with just the themes of the movie and the fact that some parts are a little comedic, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Tuco is meant to be a somewhat comedic character, which I was happy to find out because I thought it, he was funny sometimes. And um, I know sometimes movies are so serious about themselves that you're really not supposed to take it as comedy and I usually take things as comedy (laughs) even in uh Django Unchained when I was watching it there's this really serious scene but Luke and I had to keep we watched it like four times in a row because we just kept cracking up (laughs) so but anyway so I was happy to know that this movie is sometimes meant to be you know some parts of it are comedic oh Tuco is hilarious there's this whole part where this town is being blasted to pieces because of the war and everyone has left and he just wanders into this place of this bathhouse and he it, there's a war going on outside <laughs> and he's like I want to take a bath so he's like putting like all these bubbles in the bath and then he's like <laughs> taking a bath and someone is sent to kill him and this person is like walking around and then they kind of ha- they have a few words and then Tuco just shoots him because he they, this wouldn't have, you know, this isn't movie magic. You really wouldn't be able to shoot a gun if you had it in a bubble bath. But he had his gun with him in the bubble bath. And guy. But it's like, he's so happy. He's like, oh, cool. There's a bath. I haven't taken a bath in a while. Yeah, I'm going to do this. It's so weird. And it's so funny. And I love that he takes the bath and then he doesn't look any cleaner, really. No, he, he doesn't. And he has these giant rings on his fingers too which really accentuate what his hands are doing so he does oh well, he crosses himself which isn't really isn't comedic but that stands out a lot uh-huh. and um just everything he does with his hands it almost reminds me of just like a like a really rich greedy king or something you know with his big rings and <laughs> he is an acting genius like he again uh I'm of the mind the story is really about him because he's like this goofy kind of bumbling bandit, but he's also extremely good. He he can hold his own with a gun. He is very skilled and pretty smart. He just lets his greed and his ego get in the way a little bit. But then there's this whole part where he goes to see his brother and his brother is a priest and 
they they have like this difficult conversation about how his parents died and he wasn't there because his brother couldn't get a hold of him because he's a bandit off doing bad <laughs> things and you can tell his brother's really disappointed in him and I you just don't get that from a lot of comedic characters I would say mm-hmm. these days of maybe some of the sentiment because it's good for every character to have emotional weight but the competency he's again he's not he's not stupid mm. he's just only two steps ahead of everyone else and the man with no name is three steps ahead of everyone else <laughs> right yeah yeah i like that you pointed that out cuz in some movies his character would have been purely comedic Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I, I really like that he is good at what he does. And honestly, if he wasn't good at what he did, um, the man with no name wouldn't have partnered with him because he would have been too much of a liability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was nice to have somebody else succeeding just in a different way, basically. But one thing I'm curious about with Spaghetti Westerns is how was the American West so interesting to Europeans why was that because I when I was researching it it looked like European westerns were one of the first genres of film so that had been going on for a while and then there was just this explosion of this very specific kind of European western do you know what sort of started that whole thing I think you might know more than me in this. I I have not done formal research on this. What I assumed was that it was cheaper to make in Italy. And the Italian landscape looks close enough to the American West that it worked. And I, I assumed it was cheaper because, say, for like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, there's only three Hollywood actors that they had to pay and all the rest were Italian extras who Mm. don't even really have any lines because you can tell that their lines are all dubbed. And I, I think in some cases they might not even be speaking English. They might have just been told to say something in Italian and then it was dubbed over in English. So I, I assumed that's why the spaghetti Westerns happened. I don't know what is, fascinating to me about the western in general is that a lot of the world found the american west extremely fascinating the japanese filmmaker kurosawa and i apologize if i said his name a little wrong there he really liked american westerns and he made several samurai movies that were kind of based off of westerns or just had the feel so the seven samurai is a very famous one and the hidden fortress is a very famous one and what's fascinating about those two movies is they came back around and america made a movie called the magnificent seven which is a western based off of seven samurai and star wars is heavily heavily influenced by the hidden fortress so in a weird way at least with the east america had this weird like little circle of ideas 
going around and around with Europe. I don't, I don't know. Um, honestly, my knowledge of the spaghetti Westerns is mostly limited to Sergei Leone's and not necessarily about the why they happened, but more of the how they happened and how they make me feel and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. But one thing I, I kind of connected that I can say, I think it's really fascinating to have a foreign lens on the American West. You know, this is the American West through the lens of this Italian director shot in Italy. A lot of the cast and crew were Italian. And and it is like the definitive way we think about Westerns in movies. There are several famous American Westerns, but I think in pop culture, you know, (laughs) The Mandalorian isn't paying homage to Stagecoach, which is an American-made one. Uh, It's paying homage to Sergei Leone's films. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like because it kind of had this this filter put on it, I feel like it is a romanticized version of the American West that never was, but always will be, is like this is how culturally we think about it even though it it it's very removed actually when i first watched it i didn't even realize it was a foreign made film i just thought well it has clint eastwood in it so (laughs) that means it's american i guess (laughs) but it now knowing that it was made by an italian director in italy and it was also filmed in spain too because part of Spain looks like New Mexico, I guess. So mm, mm. that works really well. It's it's interesting. He did a really good job of portraying what Americans wish the West was, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so that, totally that says it. it better. And then just kind of an interesting fact about the filming. Um, it was filmed at Cinecita, um Studios. Sorry for that poor Italian pronunciation. (laughs) The studios were founded by Benito Mussolini for propaganda and to bolster the Italian film industry. So (laughs) I just think that's an interesting start for this. It's the largest (laughs) film studio in Europe. So it's 99 acres. And to kind of give an idea of what you can film there, they they filmed Ben-Hur. So Mm -hmm. it was a big you know, really big studio. So that's where the first, where they filmed first. And then they moved on to Spain. So like you touched on before, they had actors who spoke different languages and they spoke in their native languages too. So they had Spanish and Italian and, and English all being spoken. And then they dubbed over them. So the Italian version of the film was completely dubbed over in Italian And the English version of the film was completely dubbed over in English. They didn't get any, or or if they got any of the dialogue on set, it was very very small amount. They they did almost all of it in post production. I thought that was interesting. I actually didn't pick up on that the first time I watched it, but this time watching, I was thinking, man, it seems like their lips aren't really synced (laughs) up with what they're saying, and it didn't seem. Because I noticed it more with the English-speaking act- actors mm, for some mm. reason. Because I was like, this doesn't seem like 
they're just speaking a different language and I'm and then they dubbed over it or anything so I thought that I think, was a that was a whole interesting way to do it, you know, because that's not normally mm-hmm. how you record dialogue. They obviously filmed it with that intention as well, because I think the filming is very clever in covering that up as much as possible. There is a lot of times when important dialogue is said when the person who's speaking is not being shown. It's showing like a reaction shot of someone listening or their lips are hidden because of like the extreme close up or the camera is moving or doing something. And I think that's to hide as much as possible that the dialogue may not match the lips very well. And it makes sense that they would have wanted to record the dialogue separately, um, partly because of the whole language deal. You know, they were going to have to Uh dub most of it anyway. And then since there are such wide shots it would have been difficult they didn't really have lapel mics or anything like that at the time again i would i wonder if that also helps cut down the budget i don't know and i don't know for that time but bringing sound equipment out into the middle of the desert is just really difficult so yeah to me it makes sense why you just and we'll just we'll just record everything later (laughs) and then like you said um the director did like to play the music for the actors Mm -hmm. and to sort of choreograph the camera to the music Mm -hmm. um, because for this film they composed the music first now one of my favorite parts is um during the big battle between the union and the confederacy at the end and the the music is just really loud and the cannons are going off and the editing is really fast and it's almost like the cannons are the percussion for the music and it's just mm-hmm. oh i love it yeah there are so many different cannons in that scene <laughs> there are and my i love the gatling guns too ever since i learned about gatling guns when i was a kid that's just been my favorite civil war weapon (laughs) it's just so fun to see someone like hand crank a machine gun it's so cool and then watching this movie also reminded me of the short film you made with the little um parody of uh clint eastwood i don't know if you were parodying the good the bad and the ugly specifically or if you were just kind of doing clint eastwood in general but i thought that was a pretty good (laughs) good little parody (laughs) So although in this podcast, I've talked mostly about Tuco and how good his character is. When I was like 16 and I saw this movie, I wanted to be Clint Eastwood. I thought he was so cool and he just was so confident. But he also, something I like about older films is the hero gets really beat up. I've noticed that doesn't happen as much in newer movies. But even though he's a strong character, like when you were telling the story, Tuco makes him walk through the desert and he almost dies and he's like fainting. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, that's just a really appealing, I guess, especially as a teenager and feeling awkward and vulnerable. And I had a lot of emotions I didn't know what to deal with. I guess the, the last movie we talked about was Turning Red, right? And mm-hmm. we were talking about being a teenager. Honestly, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly helped me 
kind of get through being a teenager because whenever I felt horribly awkward and uncomfortable in my own skin, I just tried to pretend I was Clint Eastwood and I was really cool and I didn't need a name or friends or anything because I just, you know, do my own thing in this wilderness of, of Italy. (laughs) Yeah. He always, cause there's, after he gives his coat to the guy who's dying, he picks up this poncho, which I think he uses this, that poncho in the other films too. Yes, I think that's, that's kind, kind of, of iconic. He just like throw if he wants to use his gun, he just throws part of the poncho over his shoulder, and then he just looks so cool because he has his vest underneath, and he has the two belts with his with his gun holster on there and he he starts reaching for the holster it's just he's just like the coolest looking guy (laughs) and that look like in the mandalorian you will notice he has he doesn't have a poncho but his he kind of has a cape thing no it's basically a poncho basically the mandalorian is wearing the poncho and you'll you'll notice if there's ever a parody of a western in pop culture and like a a skit or a cartoon, there's always somebody wearing a poncho. And that's that's because of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I do have one question, one part of the plot that I just don't understand. Near the end of the movie, when Tuco and the man with no name sort of team up against Angel Eyes, and they're in that city that's partly blown up, and they're kind of like picking off all of Angel Eye's henchmen. He has five henchmen that are with him. They walk straight down the the road in the middle of the town. Why do they just walk in the open street where they could just be shot so easily instead of sneaking around and picking the guys off from the side? Because it's cool and you get the iconic spur sounds like, Logically, it doesn't make sense. Cinematically, it still kind of gives me chills. So what? I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, the coolness is an acceptable reason. <laughs> I think I think it's because it's cool. And and again, that is super iconic. Again, I I know in um, The Mandalorian and there's other movies as well. I've noticed when there's not a western but something similar you'll get that shot with the boots going down some main way and there, there's more than one movie that has spur sound effects it's kind of funny actually because <laughs> i don't know have you ever heard someone walking with spurs before is it noticeable i have not i don't i don't know it's a movie and it's a highly stylized movie because the sound effects were recorded later. Everything's just really intense. You just, you hear everything. You hear the wind howling and you notice when there's a coyote howling and it's, it's all very, very clear that the, the mixing is not subtle. But I'm, again, I'm okay with that because the sound is telling the story more than the dialogue, I would say. Well, shoot, I'm going to have to watch it again with headphones because I live in Nebraska and we have very loud bugs here. (laughs) We have cicadas this time of year. And so they were masking the sounds 
of the movie because it's so loud even inside the house it's it's ridiculous if you live in nebraska you probably you might know anybody who's listening if you don't live here it's really hard to overstate how loud the cicadas are so anyway ah shoot i missed out on one of the characters in the movie the the sound effects (laughs) again this influenced how i started making movies and i would actually use sound effects from the good the bad and the ugly i i ripped some of the sound and so and some of the little things I filmed with me pretending to be Clint Eastwood. There, there's mm. the some of the music and then like the gunshots or the wind and stuff. So I guess I have a, a an attachment to the sound effects. <laughs> yeah, I know, or I think that your short films kind of focused more on the visual parts of the film than the dialogue because a lot of them were silent anyway mm-hmm. and that reminds me of the of these movies too you know that there's not really a whole lot of dialogue and they weren't focusing on it a lot because it was going to be recorded after anyway mm-hmm. so did this movie make you feel more okay with just putting that focus on the visuals it inspired me just to work on visuals i i am a very visual person and I just loved the, I I had seen some silent movies before I saw The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, more like Charlie Chaplin. There is a certain aspect of of film storytelling that is visual, but I, I, I feel like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly pushes it to the extreme. You don't know, you don't know the characters' names other than, I mean, Tuco, yes. But Angel Eyes and the man with, like, he's the man with no name. They call him Blondie in The Good, Mm -hmm. the Bad, and the Ugly. But it's such a sparse what you know. And what you know is mostly based off of what you see. And that just blew my imagination. And I was like, this is so cool. Let's see what we can what we can tell without saying anything. And that that's what really got me into silent film. After that, I started appreciating a lot more of the, the silent film era. But there, it's even different because in Charlie Chaplin movies, they'll have cards for when people are saying something. They don't have it a lot. But sometimes those title cards will also explain something in the plot like five years later or (laughs) and then he went to the train station or something. And the good, the bad and the ugly like it it gives you none of that information to this day. I I still have fun thinking about what was Tuco doing in that that restaurant or the bar, I guess, when the guys went in to shoot him. Like what what had he done to you don't know and I like that (laughs) and then there was the guy because the guy that comes to shoot Tuco when he's in the bath has was he in the movie before (laughs) I I actually don't he might be one of Angel Eyes goons I actually really don't know because he's missing his right arm or at least part of it and so he's and he says that it's Tuco's fault somehow 
And so there seems to be some sort of relationship there, but I couldn't remember his face. So <laughs> maybe it's in the movie, maybe it's not. And that's what I think is interesting. Their stories are so big. This almost three hour movie still doesn't give us enough information to really understand who they are. It makes the world of the film really big. And that's something that I've always liked about Star Wars, too. Star Wars does the, at least, I'll qualify this by saying the original trilogy does not tell you anything about, it, it gives you very sparse information. It's like, yes, there's these rebels, they're going up against this empire, but you don't know, like, very much at all. You don't know anything about, like, where Han Solo came from or why he's on the run from Jabba the Hutt. Uh, you don't know really anything about Obi-Wan Kenobi and, like, what happened to the Jedi. And we have that information now in prequels and series and all that stuff. But I like it because it gives my brain something to think about while I'm watching. And I, I kind of like guessing and not just having it spoon-fed to me. That's fair. Or it's more of a world that they've created and you're watching part of it. Yeah. Instead of that they created a story. Like there's so much that I didn't see that is actually impacting this, but I didn't see it. And there might not be time to see it because it's so big. Any final thoughts on the good, the bad, and the ugly, Bethany? It's just really cool. <laughs> so if you, if you have a chance to sit there for a three-hour movie or maybe break it into two chunks, that would be fine. Uh, just give it a try. And remember, it's, it's slow. It's different. It was, it was made in a different time, but I think what I find endlessly fascinating is the impact it's had on movies and our culture just in general and clint eastwood is very cool <laughs> yeah thank you so much bethany for giving me the opportunity to uh, wax eloquent about one of my favorite favorite movies you're welcome it was so fun to talk about Thank you so much for listening to the Patchwork Girl and Friends. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you would like to see the artwork that I made for it, please check out my Facebook page or my Instagram account. You can find me by looking for Patchwork Girl Productions. I hope that this episode has encouraged you to go out and have interesting conversations with your friends. I release new podcasts every other week and sometimes special ones on holidays. Have a great day, friends. I'll see you next time.